Welcome back to Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. This week on Soundboard, we talked to UVA professor Lisa Spidell and Micah Jones about their new book called The Edge of Sex. Basically, it's an overview of how bad sex education is in America and how exclusionary it really is. But first, a conversation with Charlottesville Tomorrow about a controversial Black History Month poster that was taken down at Kale Elementary School. Today, I'm joined by Billy Jean-Louis. Today was an exciting day because we changed the topic right before the interview so we could talk about a story that you've been spending a lot of time on this week. Can you tell us a little bit about the story coming out of Kale Elementary School? So people in the community have reached out to me telling me about a poster that was taken down at an elementary school in the county, Paul H. Kale Elementary. And so the poster is about the history of slavery and the people who were captured from Africa. Do you want to read it? Sure. So the poster uh, read, Dear students, they didn't steal slaves. They stole scientists, doctors, architects, teachers, entrepreneurs, astronomers, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters. I've talked to parents they said that they received an email from the division saying that the poster was taken down because the division felt like it was disruptive to the learning environment. I do want to mention that the the poster was made as part of uh, the celebration of Black History Month. It's still unclear who put the poster there. We're still following up with the story. According to a statement that was later released, I believe, uh, on Wednesday afternoon. The superintendent said that the poster was was one of several created by a committee of school employees to honor the valuable and lasting contributions of black thought leaders, artists, business, and community leaders and educators to our nation. He said that he made the decision to take down... The poster, not because of what it was said in it was untrue, but because, and I quote, it generated a contentious environment that undermined its value. So what were the concerns about the poster? He also said that in order for the poster's message to educate and inspire, he needed to provide some age-appropriate context and facilitate thoughtful, cooperative conversations with students. One of the arguments have been the fact that what was said in the poster was somewhat inappropriate to the age group of Kell Elementary. Now, in talking to some parents, they agree that it might have been inappropriate for the younger children. However, the younger children have not developed their reading skills to be able to like read what was in the poster. And they felt like the older children, for the older children, it is appropriate for them to look at it and read it. Why do some people say that the poster should have stayed up? Doing this story, I had the chance to just like 
go at the school, just wait outside to talk to some parents and, and students. And I had the chance to talk to a fifth grader. His, his first name is Simon. He's 10 years old. He said that the removal of, a, of the poster from his school, he doesn't think that was the right decision. And then he wants the poster back up in the building. So he, he told me that we cannot do anything about history. He said that you cannot ignore it. And it's unfair that they made people slaves because of the color of their skin. Additionally, some of the parents said that the poster was not inappropriate at all. And they feel like a conversation around slavery is something that needs to be had. One parent was just like very curious to find out in what way the poster would have offended someone. And she would like to hear from people who, who, who think that the poster was offensive. How is this conversation happening in our elementary school about this poster connected to the nationwide conversation about how we should educate American children about the history of racism in the United States? Teaching an unvarnished history of slavery has become a critical nationwide effort. Just last summer, the New York Times launched its ongoing 1619 project, the project which looks at slavery in America and its continued ripple effects, draws its name from the year the first slave ship arrived in the British colonies. And on, on Monday, Times reporter and project creator uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones spoke at two presentations at the University of Virginia and the Haven. She said this is a place that she thinks that shows the past is not dead at all. It's a place that's clearly still grappling and struggling with that legacy. She also said that she thinks it was important to have that conversations in this community. And the argument has been it's imperative to talk about these types of topics, the reason being it avoids repeating history. Do you remember what you learned about slavery at the elementary school level? You know, I came from uh, Haiti is the first black-led country. So, you know, it's slavery. That's something that we all learn about. This is, this is nothing we shy away from. So there was no filter. I knew exactly what happened. I grew up very near here, and I can say I had an incredibly different experience learning about the history of racism and slavery in the United States. There are things from my fourth grade Virginia history class that are completely burned into my brain, but they're all of the main rivers and who the colonists who came to Jamestown were, and we hardly, hardly talked about slavery in a meaningful way. We hardly talked about what happened to all of the Native people who lived here in yeah. a meaningful way. Yeah. And I think it takes a really long time to unlearn that stuff yes. when you're a little kid and you're not exposed to it. Is there anything else you want to add on this story? I think it's just imperative to talk about how diverse Cal Elementary is. So the Virginia Department of Education data show that white students account for 45.2% of the student body, uh, 32.5% or Latino, and African Americans make up 11.6% of the student body. Now, a parent told me that that's one of the reasons she enrolled her child at Kell Elementary because it's a diverse school. And she also told me that it is important to 
have a conversation around slavery as well as you know different cultures. If you had kids or family members or young people in your life that you were mentoring, how would you teach them about slavery and the history of racism? How would I teach them? Yeah, just personally. Just tell them the truth. I think, you know, when it comes to, like, age appropriate, that could mean many things, like, depending on the parent. But I know for me, the earlier, the better. You know, essentially that, that poster was talking about black people being architects, doctors, and things like that. It's important to have role models. Me growing up, I grew up in a predominantly black country, and so I had many role models growing up. All the people who were doctors, lawyers, they were all black. So that instilled a sense of pride in me and knowing that all I had to do was go to school and that I was going to be successful in life. I bet you're a role model for a lot of young kids. <laughs> I hope I can be. I hope I can be. And I hope that people look at me and see that, you know, being, you can be a minority and be intelligent. I think as a white person, if I had kids, I would, when they're little, just try to give them as many books and resources and toys and stuff like that. Exactly. That exactly. were created by people of color exactly. that tell their own stories and exactly. you know let them use their little <laughs> developing brains yes. to yes. yes to soak all that up and even talking to some of my friends who are white they said how like they have purchased black dolls for their children so that you know they can see that figure and then they feel like that's a way to exposing them to different things that exist yeah. in the world. And there's a lot, too, of resources like written by people of color specifically for kids, for any kids that mm -hmm. talk about things mm -hmm. like the Civil War yeah. or living under the Jim Crow era yeah. and stuff like that that are true and often from the perspective of kids, but, but age appropriate still. Yeah. I do think it's kind of interesting to think about there's a relationship between what kids learn in school and what they yeah. learn from the world. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a, a big part of this story is like, here's what's going on in the school and how it relates to how kids and parents are learning yeah. about the world outside of school and how those two things talk to each other. Let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? So... As part of our Black History Month coverage, we have been doing some videos to talk about like the connections between Black history and some of the people that we cover. The first video featured our former reporter, Emily Hayes. We will have a video where I talk about my beat and like the, the people influence my beat. Our third video will feature our reporter, Charlotte Woods. She will also talk about, you know, the people who influence her beat. And those will come out this month? Yes, they will They will all come out this month. I don't have a, a specific date when my video or my colleague Charlotte's video will come out. But, you know, the, the video is all part of Black History Month, which is February, and they will all be published by the end of the month. Thank you so much for coming. No problem. Thanks for having me. Billy Jean-Louis is a reporter covering education for Charlottesville Tomorrow. 
You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. In our next segment, we talk to UVA professor Lisa Spidell and Micah Jones about their new book, The Edge of Sex. We want to give you a heads up that while this segment isn't graphic, it does talk about sex and sex education. I'm Lisa Spidell, and I'm an assistant professor in the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Department. And I'm Micah Jones, and I am a product owner for a software development company in Charlottesville, and I'm a former student of Lisa's. And you guys just released a book, didn't you? (laughs) Uh, Yes, we did. (laughs) That's factual. That It came out in the middle of December. It's called The Edge of Sex, and it's an anthology of about 30 to 40 writers talking about their experiences with sex education in America. Yeah, basically it's an overview of how bad sex education is in America and how exclusionary it really is and what little information people are actually getting and how that impacts people's sense of their own sexuality and identity and just all the intersections of other identities that are not addressed in sex education and and what the problems are with that. And originally we had in the title that it was the unheard voices, and that definitely is what we're trying to create as a platform for those unheard voices. And in an ideal world, what would sex education look like as far as inclusivity in like public school for you as far as um, what you wish you would have had, what you hope maybe your children have? I really think Corey Silverberg's book, Sex is a Funny Word, encompasses what I really believe needs to be happening. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's very straightforward, it's very individualistic, it's gender neutral, it's what, what feels good for you, what, uh, what can you figure out for yourself, but here's information for you to make that choice. We're really terrified of giving information to young people thinking that they're going to just go have rampant sex if they know about mm-hmm. it. Well, on average, something like 70% of people are having sex by the age of 17. So abstinence only is not working. It doesn't mean that that uh, shouldn't be an option. If you don't want to, we should respect that. If you are exploring, how do we respect that? How do we do it in ways that are healthy and safe and uh, uh, give people agency over their bodies and their conversations around respect and consent and having a voice and looking at gender socialization. There's, there's so many layers that aren't addressed. And I feel like there's so many struggles that people don't have to have if we Mm -hmm. were able to have these conversations. And I hope that, you know, this will be one tool to to get that going but we've we've got a long ways to go i i agree and i think when we were doing the research for the introduction that became very apparent when you look at what's happening legislatively not only at the federal level but also you know at the at the state level and even sometimes local levels how we talk about sex education and there's been a a host of research that has pretty substantially indicated that it it does not work what what it wants to do <laughs> and that you know there's higher t 
teenage pregnancy and there's higher rates of diseases that get transmitted. And I think a lot of that stems down to what Lisa was talking about, which is sort of agency and consent and even pleasure is something that, that you kind of see lacking in sex education. I think there's a lot of sexist and heterosexist ideologies in sex education. I think also in in sexual violence prevention work now there's a uh, quite a focus on how do we promote healthy sexuality as primary prevention and part of that you know is, is again having these conversations and and really informing people about choice they have what's conversations about coercion and if we can help folks you know not feel pressured um, and also help folks not pressure people, right? right? Yeah. Just because, you know, you try to kiss someone and they move away, that doesn't mean try harder. Right. Those are the conversations we're typically not having. It's If there is any sex education, typically it's just here's some contraception, don't get pregnant, here's some STIs. And don't talk about anything. Right. Yeah. And we're done. Right. <laughs> and that's a huge issue, too, is that people that are trying to do what little sex education there is, you know, don't have training sort of tacking it on to health mm-hmm. or driver's head. Right. <laughs> driver's head. Yeah, it's like, it's true. Oh, I thought, like, I took it in, in driver's head. Yeah, it's like <laughs> That's gym, absurd to driver's me. head. Exactly. We learned, like, CPR, and then they were, like, sex. I like the idea of, like, here's a stick shift and a condom. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, like what? <laughs> But going back to <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I, I derailed. Us. I was just I just had this thought also about age, like what's age appropriate. That's a, a very big debate also. And raising a child, I'm just so fascinated by my own daughter. When you normalize language and you normalize certain concepts, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, if you're talking about uh, body parts, like you would talk about your elbow it's just a very regular part of the conversation and how do how do we there are age appropriate ways to talk to children so that they're learning certain concepts that you're not going into the mechanics of sex but you're talking about consent mm-hmm. like i you know have taught all adults around her that they need to ask before they touch her you know say hey can i have a hug one of her teachers who's, you know, my friend Mike would always say, do you want a hug or a high five? You know, that we're giving kids agency and choice. Those are the basis of, you know, learning things for the future. And we're so terrified of this discussion that we don't realize how we can simplify it to make it age appropriate and still get these certain concepts going for kids. And then you build off of that. And we have this idea, it's like, okay, fifth grade, we're going to start the talk. Mm-hmm. And every, nobody wants to be there, right? Because nobody's been building it up. Or parents are like, okay, we're going to have the talk. Right. And nobody wants to have the talk at that point because mm-hmm. they're 12. Or in your case, 16. 16. <laughs> yeah, and my sixth talk was great. <laughs> Do you have any Is questions about life? Um, yeah, that's what it was. I was driving, my brother was 18 at the time, and... We were in the, the the van, and Dad was driving, and he just got very quiet. And he goes, um, so, <laughs> do you have any um, uh, questions about life? And we were like, no. And he was like, okay. And that was it. 
that was it. And then later when we were like, you never gave us a sex talk. He's like, I tried and you told me not to. <laughs> we were 16. One thing Nobody it, wants to yeah. have that conversation. I, th- I mean, I think they would if they felt like they had the tools to do it, but it's so uncomfortable. It's so awkward. And then if we're waiting for, you know, when they're 12 or older to have one talk. Right. Would you guys mind reading some, sure. some excerpts so we can hear from these individuals ourselves? Yeah. So Emma's piece is about having faked orgasms for most of her life. There are still times when I still feel silly that it took me 35 plus years to discover all of this. I don't think orgasm should be the goal of intimacy and sex, and sometimes I think it should be the starting place for deeper connections and not the end of an act. For me, I think not focusing on the results, but the journey itself helped me grow and learn so much about my body. I was always curious and open to trying new things, but I needed to be able to see and claim my worthiness on my own in these partnerships. Once I was strong enough to voice who I was, without shame or apology, there was nothing holding me back. I wish I had started this work years ago when I was in my teenage years and my 20s. I try to not have regrets and to forgive myself for the decisions I made that didn't honor me or my body, but I still wish I had known all of this earlier. I loathe saying I wasted that time because I was consistently learning, but it sure could have been a lot more fun. And then Destiny's as well? Yes. Just a very different perspective, which is what we love about our book. Black women have had to reconstruct narratives concerning our bodies and set our own terms regarding our bodies, how our bodies are objectified. We have to accept the heavy lifting of healing work after our sexual traumas. A black woman creating a narrative about black women creates agency through positive representations that are not solely reactionary to oppressive systems. Black women constantly get depicted in the media as victims, but when black women create art and literary pieces which redefine black womanhood and project positive depictions of the black woman's body and her sexuality, they are creating agency for black women in resistance to oppressive structures And that representation is incredibly important for black spectators. It's transitional to see revolutionary images of black women and not just as reactions to oppression because this positively influences black women's perceptions of themselves. Black women are more than their bodies. Black women are more than the violence that gets enacted on their bodies. I am so many things other than my body. I'm a college graduate, a business owner. I'm a hustler. I'm a mover and a shaker. I'm an artist, I'm a sister, a daughter, and a friend. I'm a writer, a creator, a musician, I am a poet. I'm an advocate. I'm so much more than my body and what I choose to do with it. I am more than what the world tells me about myself. I'm amazing. Okay, I'm getting a little teary. I was going to say, yeah. (laughs) And now I'm going to cry. Wow. And they shared narratives like that so vulnerably, as you mentioned. That's Mm -hmm. not an easy thing to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm always moved by what students write and what they're willing to share. I think there's a need to be able to process a lot of this, and I'm so thankful that they trust me with that. Um, it takes a lot of brain power to respond carefully and caringly when people are, are you know talking about such personal stuff, but to me that's part of the learning process and should be part of your academic experience is how does this affect you personally? How do you feel about this? Mm. And I think that how do you take that out into the world? You know, what's our goal for education? And 
big part of my goal is to have that personal effect and and want to enact social change. Definitely. And then how did you go about getting 30 to 40 writers to contribute to this anthology? I have panels from the LGBT Resource Center Speakers Bureau come and speak in my class, and Micah was on one of those panels, and then you came to a couple classes. Mm -hmm. So that's how we originally met, was when he was coming and speaking about his own story and is very humorous and very entertaining. And, we try with the jokes. Yes. <laughs> very informative. And then you took a class with me. You took Metamasculinities mm-hmm, with me. Over the summer, yeah. And then you took Human Sexualities. Is that the and Gender-Based Violence. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of reflective writing in class, and so people write very personal narratives. And Micah's writing really stood out to me, and I said, hey, we should do a book. That's how it happened. It was that formal. <laughs> yeah. I think it was like close to the end of the semester in spring. And Lisa's like, hey, do you want to write a book? And I was like, yes. <laughs> that would make me the coolest person in the world to write a book with Lisa Spindle. And then it was like, how do you pull your resources to ask people to contribute? Because it's it's also a very personal thing to be asking people who don't fit like hegemonic standards write about your experience with sex and sexuality that's a very vulnerable thing to do and so it's difficult to get someone to do that when they're doing that out of the good graces of wanting to contribute to the project half the writers are former students so some of it was based on who I knew and we would talk about you know what do you think about this and how do we represent this perspective and then there are folks that Micah knew and then people that I was connected to nationally. So it it became this amazing mixture and trying to get different ages involved and different perspectives that way, not just uh, students. But it was quite a process because of that personal part of it that you were just talking about. And so there, there are some people that it was too difficult to do. Like they wanted to do it. So sort of the original group, looks different than the final group and Mm -hmm. we really had to be accommodating to people's needs and where they were and how they were feeling and it was three and a half years in the making so someone who wrote something in 2016 probably felt very different than they did in 2018 or 2019 which I know is actually the case for the piece that I contributed because I I look back at it I'm like this I would describe this whole thing this is not how I feel at the moment this is not what I would write about but it's also like for 2016 that's accurate for where I was People were, some identities were transitioning Mm -hmm. in the process, so we were like, we better finish this, (laughs) because people's uh, lives keep changing. I mean, some stories were just, you know, a specific part of their past, Mm -hmm. or some people were writing about what was going on right now, Mm -hmm. so that definitely, you know, is ever-changing. But I think that what we captured really addresses so many different realities. Wherever people are now, I think these stories... People can relate to them, and that's really the intent. I mean, part of what was happening in my class, particularly human sexualities, I was I was having the privilege of reading all these stories, but I didn't get to share them. And there were a lot of folks that were really isolated and feeling like they were the only person, and I wanted to be like, hey, John, why don't you talk to Sam? <laughs> but I couldn't do that. So that was part of that motivation, too. You know, I have to respect their confidentiality, but in this way of of creating this platform just trying to raise awareness this is definitely a resource for academics and academia but it's also something that we wanted accessible 
because I feel like a lot of times scholarship is kind of esoteric and inaccessible, even about the people it's writing about, mm-hmm. which is something that I think is is... It's not always the case, but when it is, it kind of bothers me that there's language that's being created about people who have no voice in the creation of this language that's now being used to define them. You know, this is a resource for a casual reader who wants to learn about healthy sexuality and pleasure and consent and all these things. But it's also a resource for academics because it's saying, here, these are these people in their own terms. And I, I don't think that the irony is lost on me that, like, we are also two white people who are aggregating the this anthology of voices and I like that we are able to take a step back and say you know we we did not contribute the body of this work like we we helped aggregate it but really like the voices stand on their own and they should be reflective of each individual's own perspective of their life which I think is really something that's kind of crucial that I personally found lacking in the scholarship that I read I think something that about the text is it it doesn't feel static I feel like this is not something that we can just like, okay, the book is out there, now we're done. You know, this is just like 30 to 40 perspectives, but there's so much that that can't fit into 150,000 words. Mm -hmm. And so how do you talk to all the people who, you know, need to be represented? So our hope is to be very present and to be very out there and to raise as much awareness as we can. We didn't do this to make money. That's that's not our goal. It's really about raising awareness. And if people do want to find the book or find either of you on social media, where where can we find the book? So Keep updated <laughs> on this journey. We, we are on Twitter and, and Instagram. And the book you can find through the publisher. We're also... We'll be speaking with the festival of the, at the festival of the book in the end of March. So you can find it through the publisher or through, you know, other mass marketing Options. retailers like Amazon or Burns and Nobles. All of my social media is C, Micah Jones. And Lisa, what is your Twitter what handle? Twitter's at Dr. Lisa Spidell. Instagram's L Spidell. And we're trying to hashtag the edge of sex and, you know, get it trending as you say. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a big deal to have these perspectives. We hope that folks can relate or, you know, feel a little less isolated and know that there are other folks that are struggling and and see some of the resilience and resistance and empowerment also in the stories. That segment was planned and produced by Jen Curry. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Production assistance this week by Jen Curry. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Marin Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at seavillesoundboard.org.